Revolutionary Talk for Revolutionary Times. Liberty Talk FM. Today I'm excited to have a very special guest on, Dr. Dennis Sullivan. Um, he is a professor of biology at Cedarville University. I think he's now, he's going to tell us a little bit more about it. I think he's now retired, but he's somebody who's been in the health profession and talked about ethics and for what's really important to me, and we talk about a lot on the show, the Hippocratic Oath, which is something that i one of the doctors who took it and lived by it and practiced my medical profession, using that as my as my standard of care, not what is you know expedient, not what's convenient, but what's right and what's morally you know right for my patient and to care for my patient. And I know that Dr. Sullivan, you've you've had a, a storied career. You've practiced um, medicine in war torn areas. You've been a mission, you've worked on missions, and you've seen a lot of aspects of a healthcare system which challenges, I think, you as an individual, as a human. And so I wanted to get your take on, let's start with the Hippocratic Oath and tell us a little bit more, because I gave a, a brief overview, but what are you doing now and, and where, where are you in terms of educating medical students? Well, Dr. George, thank you so much for the opportunity to speak with you and your listeners today. Um, I have uh, been a general surgeon and served uh, as uh, I had the privilege of serving in the U.S. Army, Fort Campbell, Kentucky, but then later served as a missionary uh, with my family in the countries of Haiti and in the Central African Republic. We had to leave Africa in 1996 because of the very violent civil war which led to my uh, change of emphasis to an academic career. And for 23 years, I served at Cedarville University, first teaching anatomy and physiology there, but very quickly getting into the area of medical ethics. I received an advanced degree in um, medical ethics in 2004. Um, we started a center for bioethics at Cedarville University. And um, in the last five and a half years, I've been teaching in the graduate level at the uh, School of Pharmacy. At Cedarville. And just this past June, I retired from full-time academic life, but I still serve on ethics committees of two area hospitals, and I'm developing a new clinical ethics program at uh, Wright State University School of Medicine here in the Dayton, Ohio area. So I'm passionate about ethics. I'm passionate about uh, professionalism mm -hmm. of not only physicians, but other healthcare professionals. You know, I think that professionalism and ethics it seems to me that those two things have gone a bit by the wayside since we've embarked on a different path in healthcare. It's become more about algorithms and about population medicine and about money, quite frankly, and not about individualized patient care. And it's one of the things that started me on the path from my show to speak about this because it, it really has changed how medicine's practiced. And I refuse to go down that route, but I see how this is taking a toll on my patients on healthcare delivery and basically on the cost of healthcare. You know, as a medical student, we didn't learn any of this stuff. We didn't learn how to run a business. We didn't learn about how to make sure that you're dotting I's and crossing T's for insurance companies. 
but I'm not sure. I'm curious to know what's going on in, in the medical education system now, because I don't think the students are learning what we did. Well, that's an excellent question, Dr. George. Let's think back for a moment about the history of what has been, in the past, the standard of medical professionalism. And it, as you mentioned, it's been the Hippocratic Oath. Hippocratic Oath was founded by a, a, a pagan Greek physician named Hippocrates. We don't know much about him, but he lived about 400 years B.C., and he started a school uh, of Hippocratic medicine that bore his name and, as, as everyone knows, is characterized by a unique oath where at the beginning of their training, the, the students took an oath to, uh, to do various things. And, and, and it's fascinating, the basis of the original oath. Let, let me just comment before we talk about mo our modern day. Mm. Let me just make a couple of comments about the original oath. Uh, listen to the opening of the oath. It says, I swear by Op Apollo the physician and Asclepius and Hygieia and Panacea and all the gods and goddesses, making them my witnesses, that I will fulfill, according to my ability and judgment, this oath and covenant. Now, that's very interesting. Um, we, we smile a little bit at the, uh, the old-fashioned deities that, that nobody really worships anymore, but it's important to not be distracted by that because there was this vertical dimension where the physician of old was declaring before deity that I will fulfill this oath, and the word is covenant. Now, that's more than just a promise. That's more than a contract. That's an inviolable duty that binds the physician to certain non-negotiable duties. And we'll talk about those duties in a moment. Mm -hmm. But that's the sacred nat nature of the oath. And, you know, it only took until the time of Christ that that original pagan language was replaced by Christian language. And so people felt free to swear by God Almighty uh, in the Judeo-Christian perspective and uh, make that, and it was just fully compatible with um, the major monotheistic religions, and, and, and that standard, that Hippocratic standard, has become the practice of medicine for the last, you know, 2,400 years, and it's amazing. It is, and I don't think people who don't understand what the Hippocratic Oath means, what you just said is, is just, it's so powerful. I think we've been demonized literally by society that we just want to take tonsils out cut feet off drive huge cars and it's all about the money and that's not what medicine the the essence of medicine is about it's about being having a covenant with god and with your patient to do the right thing and i guess you know you'll go through the the tenets of it but do no harm is one of them and not doing things for money is another one i mean it's everything that they claim that we're doing, an, an actual physician took an oath never to do that. And that's the key. That's absolutely right, Dr. George. And of course, you've mentioned already something that all of us, whether we're in healthcare or not, know from our childhood. What's the, what's the number one principle of medicine? It's do no harm. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the principles that, that, um, that Hippocratic Oath the actual language is, I will keep my patients from harm and injustice. 
there's a there's a parallel principle, and that is to have the best interest uh, of your patients in mind. To good to do good, in other words. Mm-hmm. In other words, um, and the wording from the oath is, "I will apply treatment for the benefit of the sick according to my ability and judgment." So these twin um, principles. Uh, if we wanted to get technical about it, there are the, the principles of beneficence and non-maleficence. It simply means intending good and preventing the bad. And you know what? That principle is so important that the Hippocratic Oath underlined the doing no harm with two examples that I think have a lot of bearing on our current conversations. One of them is the Hippocratic physician would never uh, do this. I will neither give a deadly drug to anybody if asked for it, nor will I make even a suggestion to this effect. So, of course, assisted suicide was completely forbidden by the oath. Mm-hmm. Similarly, I will not give a woman an abortive remedy. I will not give a treatment that causes abortion. Now, these were part of the original do no harm of the Hippocratic Oath. <clears throat> and so, yes, uh, these were the principles that um, originally were there. There was also a principle of justice that was part of the oath along with some other more minor principles, but that justice one is really interesting because back in the day of Hippocrates, only physician, only men could become doctors. Um, women did have much status in society, and yet there's a specific paragraph in the oath that says, I will not take advantage of my position and abuse women mm-hmm. in the doctor's room. And it goes further. I will not abuse Slaves. Slaves are considered property back in that day. And yet, there's this incredible principle of, of justice, social justice, that existed long before we talked about it in our Western societies. And that was part of the Hippocratic Oath. So these principles were embedded. Also, the principle of privacy, keeping confidence, not revealing secrets about your patients. This was the standard of medicine for two millennia, and it's only been in recent years that we seem to be departing from these principles, and I'll talk about that. Well, I think that's a great place to take our first break so people can digest the, the baseline and the foundation of where we're talking, you know, where our conversation is going today. You're listening to Medicine on Call. You're listening to Medicine on Call, where healthcare, business, and current events connect. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. We're speaking with Dr. Sullivan, and before the break, I think you are giving a really excellent and and thoughtful review of what really, what the Hippocratic Oath really means. And I think it sets the foundation for where we are now, where this is, this is what people are, what governments and what people are thinking medicine's about. It's about, you lived a good life, you need to be made comfortable, we need to put you in a hospice, it's all about comfort care, and we'll get into all of that down in the rest of our conversation. But it's the actual opposite. You have an insertion of moneyed companies, whether they be big pharma, the hospitals, all of these 
entities have inserted themselves between the doctor and the patient, and that pure relationship has been adulterated by this. You have some entity telling you what constitutes care, what constitutes the standard of care, and it's not the doctor and the patient anymore. How did we get into this position, do you think? Well, that's, that's, that's a key question because certainly modern medicine looks a bit different from the way it was practiced and, and well-practiced, even without all the technical innovations of medicine in years past. So what has been the big change? Well, it's interesting to note that we had the do-no-harm to do the best uh, for your patients and this idea of justice that came out of the original oath, notably missing from the list is patient choice. Mm-hmm. Now, that sounds a little bit odd, and I want to develop that in more detail in just a moment, but let's look at what we have on the basis of, of the first three principles. The idea of, of a profession is that healthcare is self-policing, determines its um, its, its goals, and even in the, the limitations of medicine back in the day of Hippocrates, the orientation was to heal the patient. It was all about healing. It was mm-hmm. all about helping. It was all about curing the patient, and if not able, you're not able to cure the patient, then make the, the patient live as long and as comfortably as possible. And so this was the whole idea of professionalism. So now we bring in the idea of choice. The, the word is actually, the technical word is autonomy. It was brought in, in during the Enlightenment in the 18th century. And yes, it is an important corrective in, in, in one important sense because, you know, we had this uh, paternalistic form of medicine where uh, the doctor with the white coat knows best. And, and of course, it was always men in medicine, and that, that's kind of a power play at times. And, and now that women are, are just as, uh, if not more, commonly physicians as men, uh, that has completely changed. But the change in our current environment is adding a fourth principle, and that is autonomy. The good news is that, that individual patients, even though they don't have health care training, can make their own decisions about healthcare, and that is important. That is a valuable principle. But in my opinion, I think that autonomy has run amok. I think it has gone way overboard. And now, this radical form of autonomy, we have, uh, if you will, almost uh, designer medicine and, and, and patients who try to tell physicians what they want to have done. Um, and that goes right against professionalism. I like to tell my students, hey, look, I'm not the cable guy. I'm not the person that's hooking up your TV. Hey, uh, hey, buddy, hey, lady, where do you want your TV hooked up? I'm here to hook up your cable, you know. Mm-hmm. Where do you want, what room do you want it in? No, 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 that's not me. That's a, a legitimate service orientation. But in that frame of thinking, it's all about the individual. It's all about the consumer. Well, the way I learned medicine, you know, patients are not consumers. They're patients. They're people with a need, and they depend upon the professionalism of a physician. 
So I'm, I'm not the cable guy. I have a say in what happens, and I have the training, and hopefully I'm guided by doing no harm and wanting your best interests, and I'm guided by justice, and I'm going to explain things so that you have your rights. You can choose, mm-hmm. but you're, at some point, you're going to have to trust my professionalism. And that's the element. When we look at some the way things have changed uh, in some medical schools in a minute, it will surprise you. The thing that we're missing today is that emphasis on professionalism and trust for physicians. I think that's a very good point, and I think that may be one of the reasons that use the perception of of uh, <clears throat> you know the, the the people of suing doctors have come into play because there really isn't a for the most part, not in my office, thank goodness, and I'm sure not when you dealt with patients, but there's this feeling that the patient is not really important. It's to get the next one in. Don't listen to them. Type on a computer. But, you know, I, I would venture to say that part of this is superimposed on us because back when I first opened my practice, I was meant one of many who went out on their own, who had their own, you know, run their own show. But now that's 60% of us are, are employees. So the ability to actually be individual and to have individualized relationships and, you know, uh, treatment options, that's gone because the hospital is running the show. And evidence-based medicine, in my view, has been one of the things that's literally stripped this art. And I think that <clears throat> is what we're talking about. Professionalism is just as much about interpersonal relationships and art form of medicine. It's been stripped out. In, in place by rigid, this is how it gets done. If this is the, the diagnosis, this is how you treat it. And if you deviate from that, then somehow you're an outlier. How does that, I mean, I'm sure that's pervaded the medical school as well. I mean, who's under underwriting some of these things? It's big pharma, right? Well, certainly that's part of it. Look, you're absolutely right. Uh, think about, think about why, young people go to medical school. They go in because they want to help people. Mm -hmm. They're idealistic. What happens to them during four years of medical school and between three to seven years of postgraduate work, medical residency, what makes them turn them into into dispensers Mm -hmm. of healthcare, technicians, rather than than real patient-centered professionals? I believe that a lot of that is imposed on them. It's the 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 the, the, the number crunching and the bean counting, and um, but I think in some respect in our modern society, our individualistic society, I think I think medical students and doctors are giving it away. Look, I've already shared with you the way things look like in the original Hippocratic oath. Mm-hmm. What what's the status of the oath nowadays? Mm-hmm. Um, Almost all med schools require an oath at graduation. Remember I said that in the original sense, uh, you took the oath before you even started your medical studies. Uh, just an interesting wrinkle that, that I think is, is curious. But of all the med schools that, that now require an oath at graduation, a few use an updated version of the original, but none use the original oath. And uh, as of 2015, over 50% of schools use an oath unique to the school as opposed to only 9% in 2009, according to a recent study. So, what do you, what, you know, if, if they're kind of designing their own oaths, what's that look like? Well, that language of 
uncompromising benefit for the sick and protection from harm is being replaced by a phrase like this. I'm borrowing from the Washington University School of Medicine oath that was taken by all their students in 2017. And one of the primary and upfront values is as follows. I will educate and empower my patients and their families to make choices that honor their values and beliefs. Hmm. Isn't that curious? Yeah, it is. What do you think of that? I doesn't have any kind of moral compass to that. <laughs> it's it's pretty it's it's pretty erratic. Yeah. And, uh, it, it's uh, it, it's 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 pure relativism. Exactly. But isn't that where we're going? Moral relativism. Yeah. If I if it's good, if I think it's good, then it's good, right? As long as I think I'm doing good, it's okay. But that there is a good and a bad, and there's a right and a wrong. That line doesn't exist in this system. Yeah. So so what are the implications of that? What are we dealing with as a result of that emphasis? If you think about it, remember I said earlier that the original Hippocratic role of physician is healing. Mm -hmm. I once went to a um, I was a, a, a keynote speaker at a dinner for an end-of-year banquet at a hospital system up in, um, up in Michigan where, um, where, where they were going to be cutting 10% of their workforce and everybody was upset and grumpy and I was the after-dinner. I was the after-dinner speaker that was supposed to lift their spirits. So what did I do? I reminded the 300-and-some physicians in the room of their Hippocratic Oath. And I told them they needed to remember they're healers and they're, it's a calling. And, oh, you could just feel the, the atmosphere lift and people began to smile and people began to be encouraged. And I got more thanks and more appreciation from that reminder because doctors want to be healers. Mm -hmm. but, but the current society is saying that we're supposed to be dispensers of some type of, uh, you know, concierge medicine for our patients according to whatever they want. The contemporary role of the physician is not healing. It's subtly, it's relief of suffering. Mm. Oh, wait a minute. We're all going to suffer in life. We're all eventually going to die. But, it, you know, if, if, the, if the end is relief of suffering, then that opens the door to all kinds of things that traditionally doctors should never do. And that includes those two issues that I mentioned earlier. One of them is abortion. And we now have uh, abortion. We have in the, the um, Reproductive Health Act in the state of New York is allowing abortion at any time in pregnancy up until the very moment that you're going into labor. And, in, and, and don't get me started. We could have another entire conversation about the nine states in the United States and the District of Columbia that now have legalized assisted suicide. And Oregon is proposing to actually legalize something that has never been permitted, and that is euthanasia. Well, so Dr. these, this is the slippery slope that we're now on. Well, let's take a break and, and explore that in more detail when we come back. You're listening to Medicine on Call. What's up, everybody? Bubba here. It's finally here. The long-awaited Bubba Report, bringing you news from all the trading floors across the globe. We've got Scott Chalady, the cow guy, is seen on CNBC, Fox, and Bloomberg. We've got Keith Bliss, CNBC, Fox, and a floor trader at the New York Stock Exchange. We've got The Badger. 
who writes the hot topics and the political news. We've got myself putting together my own unique indexes that will help you give you a better idea of what's going on in the market. All you need to do to get a hold of the Bubba Report is go to thebubbashow.org and sign up for the newsletter, or you can email me direct at bubba at thebubbashow.org. We want you to have this report because we've got over 150 years of experience talking about markets, getting ready for the trading, and puts you in the best position to have successful. So email me at bubba at thebubbashow.org to get a copy of your report or go right to the website, thebubbashow.org. Make sure you get it. It's a must-have for every investor and trader. The Bubba Report. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. We're having a very important conversation with Dr. Dennis Sullivan. Um, he is a professor of bioethics. I believe you're going to be teaching that as well um, in your in your post-retirement um, life. Am I correct? Yes, I'll be teaching at our medical school here in Dayton, Ohio. Now, before the break, you said something that was uh, uh, thought-provoking about these this legislation that allows abortion on demand, and people don't really think about what that actually means. I think we've taken, we've stripped out the the meaning behind these words. It's all about a movement and about an emotion and about I'm all, you know, someone has to be right and somebody's taken something at the expense of somebody else. But what we're talking about is human life is what we're talking about. Yeah. And abortion on demand doesn't mean at the time of conception for these folks. They're talking about post-birth abortion, which is a euphemism for killing somebody after they're born. So you have a viable human being that... You're not allowing to live. I mean, I don't understand how that's any different than taking the life of somebody, period. But the way we've couched this, it's become more of a social construct than an ethical, moral one. So you talk about euthanasia, you're talking about assisted suicides. This has now become something that, again, I think language has become a weapon in a way. I've heard of you know, making somebody comfortable. I've heard of comfort care. Now there's something called comfort rooms. And for my listeners, can you decipher what those three things are? Because on the face of it, it sounds wonderful. You're making somebody comfortable. You're alleviating their suffering. And let's talk about that because it's not about mm -hmm. what it says. It's about what it really means. And people need to understand it. Well, of course, your, your question is so apt. And it's part of the trickery. Uh, there's a word we use in in philosophy and logic called a euphemism, and euphemism is when when we use more comfortable lang sounding language to cover up something that we want to do that was really uh, really evil. I think the most famous euphemism we can think of is uh, uh, the final solution of uh, Goering in uh, World War II, which we know what that stood for. Mm -hmm. um, sounded kind of harmless when it was first introduced. And this idea of comfort, remember that life is no longer the absolute value according to the modern understanding of, the, of, of ethics. It's comfort. And so that's a key word. Comfort rooms are really a way to, to make a euphemism for permitting the unthinkable. You know, this all started a few years ago with Princeton philosopher Dr. Peter Singer 
the atheist philosopher who first proposed that that um, you know we should uh, we should be able to just take the life of newborns that we don't want because they don't have any moral status just like the uh, the preborn uh, don't uh, on his philosophy. Uh, I, I think he's wrong. I think that that uh, that babies have value in the womb from the, from conception forward. But but he was suggesting that infants don't even have value after they're born. Mm-hmm. So how has that worked out in our modern, very contentious debates? We have the federal legislation just just failed in the Senate. Uh, the infant the um, Born Alive Infant Protection Act. Uh, that failed to get uh, the 60-vote majority needed to pass it, which would have protected babies that, because the, the procedure didn't go as intended, babies that were born alive after an abortion attempt. And now, um, in many states, um, it's, uh, it's just possible to just take that living, breathing, newborn infant and toss them in a utility closet and cut the umbilical cord and let them bleed out and to suffer and die. So one hospital in Illinois has designated a special uh, comfort room. And you just take those dying babies and put them in a room so they're out of sight, so that we're not bothered by that. That's what their definition of comfort means. I'm not sure who's comfortable, but certainly not the baby. And that's the kind of... of, uh, Thing that's being foisted as, uh, oh, we're we're so conservative that we're we want to deny women's right. No, we're just trying to deny women and men and our society the right to dead babies that have been born alive. And that's what that's what these comfort rooms are all about. I mean, I it kind of I don't know from a language standpoint, it's about the rights of the mother always at the expense of a living creature or living human being that's viable. I I mean, this is somebody or a soul that would survive outside the mother. There seems to be no, I mean, there was at one point, you know, there was a a movement towards, or at least a line that was never going to be crossed. If the baby was viable, that's it. You know, the time for you to, to, terminate your pregnancy is over. That's completely gone. And now we have this other entity, people who are, and I'm, I'm, I love animals. I'm an animal rights person, but animals seem to have more rights than humans at this point. The earth has more rights than humans at this point. And the movement is to, to make us, I don't know, less valuable. Everything has value, yeah. in my opinion, but we don't have less value than the rest of, of living creatures, yeah. do we? But the way this is making... This is being put out there. It is if we do. And then you find, let's, let's face it, some people are more equal than others. And it's not like everybody's being aborted. It affects certain races more than others. Black people are being aborted. That's the number one group of folks that are being aborted in New York, for example. So where does that stop? And where does things like euthanasia and, and eugenics and things like that, where does that line get crossed? You know, where are these Planned Parenthood? They're not in everybody's community, right? You have to think about that. You're right. And there's an important caveat here. Let's be absolutely clear, lest your listeners misunderstand. Comfort rooms uh, is often 
you know, a, a euphemism for something that, that you and I find very unethical. But comfort care at the end of life mm-hmm. for elderly patients that are facing their last days, providing good quality um, uh, end-of-life care and hospice care and palliative treatments, that's, uh, that's a, a good thing. So comfort care, taking care of folks that are dying, is, is a good thing. Don't get confused on that. Mm-hmm. But it all revolves around the dignity of the individual, which is why I think we ought to go back to some strong absolutes in medicine. I would propose, and the way that I will be teaching ethics at our medical school, is that we focus on the original principles from the Hippocratic Oath, that we honor life, that we make it clear that professionalism says that there's just some things that doctors cannot and should not do. And if we could return to that kind of of principle-based medicine, I think it would help with some of the bean counting and the, 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 the money emphasis and the business of medicine. And it might even call some young people back to the profession of healthcare. That's a very good point. And I think it would it would actually help the morale of the medical um, professionals that are that are practicing now, since we know that there's been a, a complete reversal of you know the the well being of physicians. Suicide rate is uh, ast- you know astronomical. The burnout rate is crazy, and this is not this is not out of out of thin air. It's a reason for it. I think if you were put on this earth and you know that you were put on this earth to help somebody and someone's thwarting that, someone's making you, I mean, no one can make you, but technically they are. If you want to practice, this is what you have to do. And it's working against your, your not only Hippocratic Oath, but what makes you you. That's demoralizing. But I agree with you. We need to take our power back. And I believe that in some instances we gave it up because for expediency and we should never have done it. And now we have to somehow wrest that power back. We can't, you know, we can't unionize. We can't collective bargain. That's not what our profession is allowed to do. But on a break, uh, we're going to take a break. I want to ask you, how do you think we can get that moral power, ethical power back so that we can actually have our profession back? On that note, let's take our last break. You're listening to Medicine on Call. Are you having problems with persistent bad breath, constant throat clearing, hoarseness, a cough that won't go away, a sore throat, or a feeling that something's always stuck in your throat? Why not find out what the problem is so it can be fixed? At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking time to work with our patients as a team to get to the root of the problem. Make an appointment today to see why Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Call 404-591-9100 or visit us at Peachtree ENT Center. This is Dr. George from Medicine on Call. Each week I speak about our healthcare system and the problems with it. One of the main problems is the doctor-patient relationship. I've found that patients really crave time, the time to ask their doctor questions, and physicians crave the time to answer those questions in a thorough manner. Towards that end, Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center is pleased to announce a new video telemedicine service. We now offer consultation for second opinions, 
and for people who'd like to learn more and ask questions about how to navigate the healthcare system in a cost-effective and efficient manner. Go to peachtreeentcenter.video-visits.com to learn more. You can catch the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify, and a host of other multimedia platforms. Subscribe and share it with your friends. Welcome back to the listening call. We're speaking with Dr. Dennis Sullivan. And, you know, this is a really important conversation. I'm very happy that you're on on the show because I'm learning a great deal. And I think we're taking a different look at medicine. It's from the roots up. You know, I mean, we are we have such power as doctors and so do patients. And we've allowed, both of us, have allowed something to encroach upon this relationship that is integral to well-being and health and delivering on promises and covenants that we made. How can we take that power back? You're really in a unique position because you're an educator. You get to see the students and you can craft, Mm -hmm. you know, give them some ammunition to help themselves. What do you think we can do to fix this? Dr. George, thank you so much for that important question, one that I'm passionate about. We need to offer medical students and practicing physicians in residency and even those that have been at it for years, we need to offer healthcare professionals hope. They need hope. Before the break, you were saying that there's a high rate of suicide in our profession, and that's true. One of the main reasons to establish an ethics program at our local university is because of the moral distress and the burnout that we're seeing in healthcare, and this idea of having to see more and more patients every day mm-hmm. and to spend less and less time with each one uh, is, is a real source of stress. When you know the right thing to do and you have the ability to do it, but you're thwarted by the system and prevented from acting, that is a casebook description of moral distress. And the, the best way to deal with that is through an ethics foundation. And um, the program that I'm developing will be offered not only to medical students, but to um, will be offered as well online to professionals uh, uh, throughout the United States. And I think it's important that, that healthcare professionals, not just physicians, but especially physicians, should have this kind of foundation that we have given up our rights for too long. We have watered down our professionalism for too long, and we have refused to draw a line in the sand and say, no, that is a procedure that I will not do. Um, A federal court in Texas has just uh, ruled um, against a law that was going to force physicians to do uh, gender transition surgery, even when it violated what they thought was in the best interest of their patients. And that that arm twisting has been repudiated by federal court. That gets into the whole area of rights of conscience, where physicians and nurses and pharmacists and 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 even paramedics and other people in healthcare um, 
can say there are some things that I will not do. And it is that professionalism that we need to take back. So it's going to be a combination of federal legislation. It will be a combination of, of advocacy. But I think the biggest linchpin in the whole thing is greater education and ethics from a full classical ethics, uh, 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 an idea called normative ethics, which means that we look at all sides of the debate. Mm -hmm. But in the Hippocratic tradition, we can arrive at the just right thing to do. And, and, and I see that commonly in ethics committee discussions where people sitting around the table, they come from all kinds of backgrounds, and yet we agree. So it's not that hard. We just need to fight for it, and we need to teach it. Well, I think one of the things that you've made a mention of, which is really important, is you have a conversation. That's not going on in our society. It's my way, and you don't get to debate. You don't get to speak. You just get removed. And that right. is a real problem because it it shuts people up. They don't like to be confrontational, and they end up giving up their rights. And once you've given them up, you're not going to get them back very easily. And I think to a degree that's happened in healthcare as well. If you are employed as a physician and you decide you don't want to perform a procedure, good luck with that. You know, I don't know how that really works out. I did it as a resident, and I took a, a little bit of heat when I wouldn't pull a plug on, on a neuro patient because I wasn't going to do it, And but I was a student. What happens when you're an employer? Your employer says this is your scope of practice and you have to do it. How do you – I mean, I, I wouldn't play that game, but I'm sure there are physicians out there put in that untenable position, you know, your livelihood or your heart, you know, your soul. How do you – Juxtapose that. Well, it's very interesting. We just had a, a, a large conference at Cedarville University, one of my final um, academic pursuits. We had um, uh, a, a conference on healthcare rights of conscience, and uh, a number of papers came out of that conference that will be in a peer-reviewed journal that I'll be guest editing uh, coming up. And the discussion centered on the idea of physicians being able to articulate this kind of professionalism that I've been talking about today. Mm -hmm. And nobody wants to be um, a bigot. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to be um, turning down the, the deeply seated uh, opinions of their patients. And so there is a way to navigate this terrain where physicians can be compassionate and humble and caring and yet guide their patients and their families into a better path. Ultimately, it's all about the patient's good. It's about what's best for them, sometimes even when they don't know it. And so I think that this approach to, you know, if so often medical professions, professionals are portrayed as somebody that doesn't care or mm -hmm. somebody who just has an opinion or, or they're just, you know, putting down their foot and they're not going to provide what a patient needs. Mm -hmm. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Physicians are agonizing over these issues. They lose sleep at night. I've already said, and you pointed out, that we have this high level of moral distress. So give us the benefit of the doubt that we truly care, and sometimes we find ourselves in a bind. And to, to try to navigate through that with compassion, caring, 
I think requires some training and some knowledge. And yes, we need to have better conversations where we're not on two different sides, but we're really just listening to each other and trying to consider arguments and be willing to budge a little bit. I agree. And again, I mean, I hate to not harp on this, but I, it, it just comes into play, I find, more than not. The medical industrial complex, for lack of a better way to put it, the, the medical um, I mean, medical staff, you know, the, things, the entity who makes up the bylaws in the hospital, I don't think that a lot of times in my, in my experience, and I've had to resign from hospitals because I thought that they were putting me against putting me against my patient, putting my license on the line, asking me to practice outside of my scope of care because the the good of the hospital outweighs the good of the physician and the, that of the patient. How do we what happens in that regard? Is there any I mean, education is one thing, but the structure that's in place. I think doctors need to have a lot more power in that and it shouldn't be doctors working against each other. You know, once whoever, whoever has uh, has the pocketbook has the power, and it should be the patient, in my opinion, because they're the ones that you're supposed to be delivering your, your care to. And anything else is a conflict of interest. How do you juxtapose, or how do you remedy that? Well, one way I think we could look at this is through our professional societies. Each one of us, uh, I'm a member of the American College of Surgeons, uh, uh, and uh each one of us has a professional society. We need to be active in those mm. and helping to um, make statements. After all, the American Medical Association a few years ago wanted to go neutral on physician-assisted suicide. And they had sent out, their ethics committee had sent out a provisional documents. And you know what? Members of the AMA, and I'm, I am a member of the American Medical Association, AMA members went to Washington, and they argued and they fought. And the American Medical Association said, no, we're going to keep our ethics statement from 1996. It says that assisted suicide is fundamentally incompatible with a physician's professional care. And, and it is due to that advocacy that they didn't make that change. Hmm. And so I think, I think it's difficult. We have all the problems of, of the, the healthcare, um, the business of healthcare, the big corporations. But I think we need to open up our mouths and take a chance. And yes, ultimately it's going to require some courage. Um, perhaps that's easy for me to say, who's currently in, in an academic role, but practicing physicians are going to have to get out there and be willing to lay their jobs on the line in order to be heard. And I, I pray for them. I wish them all the best. And I'm deeply concerned about the modern state of healthcare. But I still have hope because I believe that there is a law that is embedded in the heart of each one of us that guides us ethically. After all, that's, that's what allows us to agree together mm -hmm. from all those different worldviews when we're in ethics committee discussions. If we're just kind and compassionate and loving and professional, I still am optimistic that we could win the day. I, I love that, and I absolutely agree with you. 
I know we don't have a lot of time left. We have another uh, minute and a half or so. But I know that you're writing a book. How can people get that? And tell us a little bit about it. I'm, I'm writing a textbook of ethics and pharmacy practice, but I'm also going to be writing a number of other things. I've I've written on a number of these topics in, uh, in some uh, journals as articles are available, and I'll send you a list of some of them after we finish this interview. That'd be great. I think... Everybody, whether you're a physician or not, it's just nice to have, uh, you know, more. The more knowledge you have, the more you can make make a decision. I think all decisions should be based on as much information as you can possibly have. And I think people may have a twinge of something's not quite right, but they can't put their finger on it. And the first thing is to identify it, right? And the second is to have the courage to take a stand. If it doesn't fit with your worldview, your ethics, your heart, your soul then you shouldn't be doing it. And if you feel like you need to speak up, then by all means, you need to do that. I'm blessed that I have a show that I can do it, and I'm blessed that I have guests like you who come on, who teach me and teach my listeners about things that we don't know. So I want to thank you so much for your time. I I really look forward to having you come back. It was a wonderful conversation. Dr. George, thank you so much for having me. Um, It has been my great honor to be with you today. I want to thank you for your advocacy, for your voice, for you sticking your neck out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad for you. Thank you for partnering with me to get this this word out. And, yes, I'll be delighted to come back again. Well, thank you, and God bless. And thank you, everybody, thank for listening well. to Medicine on Call. If you've tried taking over-the-counter medications but still have problems with nasal congestion, recurrent sinus infections, sinus headaches, or a dry mouth when you wake up in the morning, why not fix the problem? From natural integrative treatment to minimally invasive surgery, Peachtree ENT Center will work with you to find the solution that works best for you. Call 404-591-9100 today to make an appointment or visit us at peachtreeentcenter.com because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Revolutionary Talk for Revolutionary Times. Liberty Talk FM.